I know like so many of you, I come in here very often and am so grateful to hear the music that we have and so grateful to see the soloist and things and you just forget the amount of time and effort that goes into all of that. Would you please take a moment and just thank everybody that works so hard to make this happen? That's really good for us. We're blessed by that. And, you know, um, we show up to hear the Christmas musical and we don't see September when they're up here all day Saturday working on that music and doing those kinds of things in their retreats and just really appreciate that. I hope you're enjoying a great start to the holiday season like I am. I've been blessed by seeing some of you at your life group parties and service opportunities and ministries that we've had in our meetings and different things like that. And as we're celebrating the Savior's birth uh, this month, I really want you to keep a couple of things uh, in your minds as we do that. One is keep pushing towards our gospel engagement number. Did you notice that we crossed 100,000 mark out there? Praise the Lord for that. That's good. It's really good. And I don't know about you, but I have had some of the sweetest gospel engagements over just the last few weeks that I've probably ever had as people are more attuned to those types of things this time of year. Um, it's just around us, and as it's around us, it gives us opportunities to talk to people. So keep doing that. Keep being sensitive to that. And, and secondly, I want you to keep this in your mind. I want you to be praying for our church right now. Uh, as we're in the midst of a season of celebrating the Savior's birth, that also means that we're celebrating the end of a year for us, but it means that we're about to celebrate some things that God is birthing in us for the next year, and we're praying about those things right now and asking God to give us direction for some things. We have so many things in the first of the year that we'll be talking to you about and, and talking about in our Vision Sunday, kind of at the end of January as we get towards that. So this is really a season of prayer for us as we're asking God to do some things uh, in the next year, and we want to be prepared for them. So would you be praying for that? And then I don't want you to forget as well tonight, uh, and maybe Kirk can make a little bit more mention of this at the end of the service, uh, that uh, we'll have some of our choir uh, members, and Kirk and Tim will be down at the Skirmerhorn tonight, uh, taking part in a big, um, what did you say, like 750 voice choirs, something that big. I mean, that's huge. Uh, and so if you want to be a part of that, make sure uh, that you see Kirk and, and you can get some more information about that. I'd like you to take your Bible and turn back to Luke chapter 1, as we're in our third week of studying the Magnificat. Magnificat is just the Latin word meaning to magnify. And we've been looking at Mary's magnification of the Lord and what he was doing in her life. And so this is week three, and we're looking at that third section. And so what I want to do is, just like we did last week, I want to read the verses that have led up to this and kind of remind us of a few things because Mary's taking ideas from the Old Testament, not just from her own experiences, although she, she could certainly have done that, couldn't she? She could have given us a lesson just from her own experiences about what God was doing, but she's taking some things from the Old Testament. We'll see that again today and how she uses those things to give us a theological understanding and explanation of how God moves and how God works and what he's doing. So as we're doing that, I want you to remember that Christmas is about a proclamation. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a season. It's really the announcement of good news. And, and that's the, the earth-shattering thing here is that it's good news for us because God is with us. God is, is taken on the form of a human, and he's going to live this sinless life for us so that he can be the perfect sacrifice. Because up until this point, every sacrifice that's ever been given is just a covering for the sin. It didn't cleanse us for 
for sin because there wasn't a perfect sacrifice. We sing about that. We say he laid down his life because he was the perfect sacrifice. And that's the proclamation that's Christmas for us. And that's the good news. And it's the same proclamation that's Mary, that Mary is making. And it's the proclamation we make today as a church as we proclaim that our God saves and that it was enough that he sent his son to die on the cross. So let's read from Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Now you remember that we talked about Mary was saying, I'm going to make a big deal out of God right now. And she's removed the focus from herself. She's placed it on the Lord and she wants all of it to be on the God who saves. And that's how she starts. And she's recognizing something here that she is the servant of the Lord, ready to do what he says. And I don't want you to forget that verse 48 says that Mary was blessed. And we learned that Mary was blessed specifically in two different ways. The first way was because she heard the word of the Lord and she obeyed. It. She, she believed it. She saw that uh, she was going to be faithful to it, and by faith she believed that, and God called her blessed. And we learned that when we read the Word of God, when we hear the Word of God, and we believe it, we're blessed. That's a, that's a very important thing for us not to forget in this Christmas season. The second thing that Mary said blessed her was that she was blessed because she had been called by God to do something. And we often see the call of God as kind of, I, I hate to even say this, but we act this way sometimes like it's an annoyance. You know, like, man, I really don't want to deal with that right now. I don't want that in my life. But listen, when God's calling you to something, when he's wrecking your plans, that's God favoring you. You know, that's God choosing you to do something. And Mary saw that she was blessed in that way. Next, Mary reminded us that she was serving the mighty one. And you remember last week that we went through the Old Testament into the New Testament, just recounting the mighty things that God had done. And we saw that, that we were serving a God who was holy, not only holy in name, but he was set apart from all other gods. And Mary then told us this great news that God's mercy is for every generation, and that includes our generation right now. The mercy of the Lord is effective even in our generation. That gives us hope this morning. It's hope that our neighbors can be saved. It's hope that our family members can be saved. It, it's the hope of the world is that God's mercy is for every generation, not just for times past. Don't let us look back to the former days and just say, why were they so much better? Why, why was it that the good old days were like this when God moved? God's mercy is still active and available today. And then we saw uh, that anyone who fears the Lord can receive that mercy and that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, now she gets into these next three verses and I want to read them for us because she's expanding on some of this and introducing a new idea to us. Verse 51, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Well, last week we observed some of these mighty things that the God of Israel had done, but Mary continues this train of thought, and it's reminiscent of one of the Psalms once again. And I'm mentioning this every week, that Mary's quoting this scripture, and this comes from the Psalms, and it's really a prayer back to the Lord, and Mary's modeling this, and it's really important for us. I want you to hear this from Psalm 98, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory 
for him. When the psalmist is speaking about the mighty hand of God, he's proclaiming the things that God has done, the work of his hand, that, that God is doing work all of the time. And I was reminded of this just this past week by our good friend Bob Sorhe. Bob came and spoke at our renewal conference, and Bob says that as we begin to pray, one of the things that we really ought to be mindful of doing is thanking God for things, that, that thanking God for things uh, is kind of like the seasoning of salt to food. You know, you can eat your meal, but you can season it as well. And he says, you know, you can go right before the Lord sometimes in desperation and cry out to him. But as we thank him, we can thank him for some very specific things in our lives. And one of those is the work of his hand. And as we think about that, we're responding to prayer. And, and the Psalms really for us are, are a prayer guide. And Mary is using that to say, as I look back on this, I'm singing a new song and I'm thanking God for the mighty work of his hands. When we thank God for his work, it could be just like Psalm 98.1. We can thank him that he gains the victory. That there's no doubt that God is going to gain the victory. And I was thinking about this recently because we've seen so many people baptized just in the last few weeks. And in the second service, we're going to see someone else baptized again. And I'm so grateful that God is working not only in our students' lives, but we've seen adults baptized too. And it's always a good thing when we're seeing the mercy of the Lord received by people and faith appropriated by them and then receive the forgiveness of their sins and be changed by that. We can thank God for that because his work is going forward. We can thank God for the work that he's done in our own lives. We can thank him that we're not the same people we were. We can thank him for answered prayer. We can thank him that he goes before us and that his will will be accomplished. We can thank him for all of those things. And when we go back and thank God for things, what happens is we're reminded of the greatness of God. I think that's one of the things that's so good about reading the Old Testament and New Testament for us as believers in the church age is that we're able to look back on these things and say, God did it here. He did it here. Look how God did that here. And we can believe that God is going to continue that in our lives because he doesn't lack power to do anything. Just by his hand, he will gain the victory. And that's what the psalmist wrote so long ago. And it caused him to sing in joy. I love that we just sang joyful, joyful. Are you joyful? Now, you know, we Baptists sometimes. We can be accused of being frozen and chosen. You know? Grateful that God has chosen us, but afraid to let anyone see it, right? Are you joyful? I mean, are you joyful about the things of the Lord? Honestly, are you joyful that God's doing it? You know, uh, I remember my mom one time saying, what's the matter? And I said, you know, nothing. She said, are you happy? Yes, well, you ought to let your face show it, you know, right? I mean, if you're happy and you know it, your face would, we're not going to sing it, but you understand the, the thing there, right? I mean, we have a lot to be joyful about. You know, when we arrive at church, I, I, let me just give you an admonition here. Don't miss the worship time. Don't miss the worship time. Don't roll up in here like you had something better to do and miss the worship time. This is important. By the way, it's commanded. When, when you blow that off, you're missing a command and an opportunity to thank God for amazing things that he's doing in our lives. He's always working mightily on our behalf. And our response is to praise him with joy for these wonderful things that he has done because he has won the victory. And you say, well, what victory? Well, the victory of our salvation. But there's another victory that he's won. We just haven't seen it with our eyes yet. That's when he's going to come back. We're wrestling with this question. Not are we ready for Christmas, but are we ready for his return? Are you? Are you ready for his return? Have you prayed for his return this week? Have you thanked him for his return? Have you thanked him that one day our enemy will finally be vanquished forever? 
We have a lot to be thankful for. Well, look at this. Next, Mary begins to contrast the ways of the world with the way that God operates. And I'm just amazed by her insight here. It's got to be the Holy Spirit speaking through her. In verse 51, the second half, he scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart, and he's brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. You know, I was recently at a convention for Tennessee Baptist pastors And as I looked around that room, I had this thought that crossed my mind. You know, the collection of people that God uses oftentimes is surprising. Because it's not, if you were in that room with us, I mean, if you hang out with a group of pastors, I'll be honest with you, you'll find this to be true. There aren't a lot of accolades that seem to be in that room. Why is that? Why is that? Because it's the way that God works. And I'm not saying that our leaders aren't smart, not at all, but what I'm saying is that Uh, God doesn't often use the MVP or the valedictorian. And I want you to listen to how the Apostle Paul uh, puts it, because this is really important. In 1 Corinthians, he says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Verse 26 says something really important. It didn't say that God never uses the smartest or the best looking or the greatest business leader, the brightest. It said not many are wise. Not many are noble. Not many are mighty. He most often chooses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. That's the amazing part about how God operates because God looks at the heart, not at the outward appearance. We we learn that in the Old Testament, don't, don't we? God looks at the heart. He's looking for a heart that's contrite. He's looking for a heart that's humble because God wants to do one thing. He wants to use people who won't boast about it so that they'll boast about God. It's an amazing thing that Mary's kind of picked up on here because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And when we feel like we can accomplish things without the help of God or or without God's influence or work in our lives, we're we're boasting in ourselves. And and what the apostle says and what Mary echoes here again is, is that God doesn't choose people like that. He uses ordinary people. You know, I often run into Christians and they really don't feel like they're very much. They have a pretty low view of themselves. They don't feel like they're important. Maybe they didn't show up with superlatives in the yearbook or win national awards. And this gives them the impression that they aren't very important. But Mary's teaching us something crucial for us to understand the ways of God. God will not use people who are impressed with themselves. He doesn't do it. He doesn't use people that are impressed with themselves. At every turn, he opposes them and confuses them and actually exalts the humble person. And so the way to real meaning in our lives is to find God's meaning and purposes for our lives. Too many of us are speaking about self-esteem. And we've got it all wrong. If you think highly of yourself, but you don't know how God thinks about you, you're totally wrong. You've missed it. The point is not for me to feel good about myself. The point is for me to go before the Lord and understand what he says about me. Because when he says that I'm a child, I'm a son, I'm chosen, I'm loved, I'm forgiven, his mercy is on my life, his favor is on my life, all of a sudden that gives an importance to my life that doesn't come from just feeling good about myself. It doesn't come from a national award. It doesn't come from all the things that I might be able to do. 
It comes from knowing who God is and what he's doing in my life. You might find yourself doing something today that feels utterly mundane. Can I get an amen? Right? But it's a funny thing. Do you know the prophet Zechariah tells us something really important? Do not despise the day of small things. Don't despise the day of small things. Because I don't think we realize the eternal impact our contributions make to the kingdom, even though they're small. You see, this world is changed by doing small things consistently. That's what makes the difference. Do you think the world hasn't been changed by 100,000 gospel engagements one at a time? Lives are being changed one at a time. The seed of the gospel is being implanted in someone's life. One at a time, someone's being called into conviction. Someone's uh, being called to a greater understanding as you engage them with the gospel. You think your prayers one at a time don't matter? That they don't move the kingdom forward? Have we forgotten that that small act of prayer does every day as we meet with the Lord? What it does every day as we meet with the Lord We're seeing heaven moved. Jesus said that our prayers would move mountains. The small act of faith. Our abilities on earth do not determine our value to our God or to the kingdom. When we humble ourselves, we're promised to be exalted. I don't want us to run past this idea of scattering the proud. Several times in the Old Testament, the prospect of scattering a group of people was given as a punishment of God for their pride. In Genesis 11, we see the story of the Tower of Babel, and it reminds us that what happens when we're not humble before the Lord. If you read that story, there are two things that they said that they wanted to do. One is that they wanted to build this tower up so that they could reach heaven. Much has been written about this that indicates that they wanted to reach heaven because they wanted to get to the highest spot they could, and they were worshiping false idols up there. That's what they were trying to do, and God was opposing that. But then there was a second thing that they said that's uh, just as fascinating to me as it said, that they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And that desire is dangerous. You know, I cringe every time I hear someone on TV, they're being interviewed for one of these maybe contestant type shows, and they say, I just want to be famous. I want to make a name for myself. Our purpose is never to make a name for ourselves. Our our purpose is to make the name of the Lord big. That's what Mary said. My soul magnifies the Lord, not my life. My soul magnifies the Lord. When we magnify him, we exalt him. And as we recognize our place in this world and humble ourselves before him, he exalts us. And for each one of us, we need to be wary of being scattered by the Lord for our pride. If God resists the proud, could it be that he's resisting you? What does that look like? It's like he's pushing back on our plans, pushing back on our dreams right now because they don't include him. We, we might be claiming to, to want to do something and, and then tack on God at the end of it. You, have you ever done that? I've, I've been guilty of that. God, I really want to do this. This is, this is awesome. I really want to do this. All for your glory, of course. But I really want to do it. And if you could make it happen, I'm sure I could influence a lot of people with this, Lord, uh, and, and I, I, I want to see this happen in my, in my job. I want to see this happen in my, all for your glory. But really what we're saying is I'm going to go ahead with whatever I want to do and you just bless it, please. I haven't consulted you. I haven't tried to exalt you. I haven't done any of this. I, I just want you to do what I want to do so get with my program. God resists the proud. And we have to live humbly before the Lord. Look at Verse 53. She says, he has filled the hungry with good things and 
sent away the rich empty-handed. We read this, and I'm not certain that we have the exact reaction that people in Mary's day would have had for her saying this, but I bet it's close because the disciples couldn't believe the rich young ruler wasn't able to find salvation. Do you remember that? They said about him to Jesus, I mean, if a rich man can't be saved, who can be saved? Because like we do so often, they equated God's blessing with wealth. They equated God's blessing with prosperity. And Jesus said it was harder for a rich man to be saved than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And what he was saying is not that a person who has wealth can't be saved. They certainly can. Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. There's a miracle of salvation that waits there. But it's a fascinating thing what he says. It's difficult because many times those of us who have financial resources don't feel like we need anything. And Mary reminds us our status with the Lord is not determined by our bank account. It's determined by our hunger for the things of God. You know, I was recently discussing this with our ministry team. Our ministry team is made up of five laymen. I have to meet with them monthly. Uh, and they provide accountability to me, but they also offer their wisdom to the church as we make decisions about things. And in a meeting that we had two months ago, we were discussing a couple of issues that had kind of come up and just some things where we felt like we weren't making progress and after we had kind of discussed this for a while, one of them pointed out it was an issue really of desperation. And I want to quote what he said. He said, Pastor, we aren't hungry for the Lord. We aren't desperate for him. We're too comfortable. You know what? I believe he was right about our church. But I believe he was right about me. You know, it's easy for us to exchange happiness and comfort with hunger. Hungering for the Lord. When things are good, the economy's good, do you find yourself uh, just looking for the next thing that you want to buy or the next weekend vacation you're going to take or, or the next trip that you're going to get to go on? Is that where you spend all of your time and your focus? It's, it's just those types of things? Do, do you find yourself when things are good at home not hungering for the Lord maybe as you had in times past? What we, what we tend to do is, is kind of work towards this slow fade where complacency happens in our lives and we just don't feel like we need God quite like we did yesterday when we were really hungry for him. I want you to hear Psalm 107 verse 9 because Mary's talking about this. She says, He satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he is filled with what is good. And this is a promise for us that God will satisfy our souls and he will fill us with what is good. But there's always this possibility that we don't feel hungry because we're filling ourselves up with other things, kind of like junk food that makes us feel full and leaves us no opportunity to eat well. You've probably experienced this if you've ever been on a road trip or a business trip. You know, you just start eating out of the car. Everything becomes a, a lunch from a sack. You know, you're going through a drive through and, and, and those types of things. And what you kind of start to find is that you're not really that hungry, but deeper in you is this longing for something more satisfying than just another fast food meal. You don't even realize it, but your body stops operating at its optimal level because you're just filling it with junk all the time, too much caffeine, too much soda, all those things. And our bodies were designed by God to consume these real foods, real fruits, real vegetables. 
And once you get familiar with eating good foods, it's hard to get excited about another meal from a sack, isn't it? It's hard, it's hard to get there. And you can kind of fill yourself up on that. But when you come back to it and you eat a real meal, you notice how satisfying it is and how you begin to hunger for that again. And Jesus tells us that we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness and that if we would do that, we would be satisfied. And what he's saying is the exact same thing that his mother said years before, right? Jesus said that to us as we studied the Sermon on the Mount, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're going to be satisfied. We'll be satisfied with good things when we come hungry for God to do something in our lives. We recognize that all these things that fill up our time might just be keeping us feeling full without actually satisfying us. And when we find ourselves that way, there has to be a detox. There just has to be a moment where you stop and get hungry for the Lord. And and here's what I mean. I mean, when was the last time you prayed about something at school or work or with your family like your life really depended on it? I mean, like your life really depended on it. Like this decision that you were making, if God didn't speak to you about it, you were scared to go forward. I mean, when was the last time you did that? Or are you just so self-sufficient that you can do the kind of all for your glory, tack it on, bless this mess that I've created type thing? Hungering and thirsting. Being desperate before the Lord. Praying to Him and asking Him to fill you with wisdom and knowledge and righteousness. When was the last time that you felt desperate for Him or where you wanted to be righteous in a way that your soul longed for it in your life like a cold drink on a hot day that was just scorching you to death, where you just really wanted that. You desired it, to have that need in your life just satisfied. I fear that we don't have much of that hunger. I fear that we're pretty content, and we're pretty comfortable, and we're pretty good at putting on appearances and we can kind of play the game and it's Christmas and we know what to do and we know when to sing the right songs and we know how to show up here. But there's a difference between just kind of showing up and punching in and punching out and being hungry for it. There's a difference between being desperate for it. There's a difference between going before the Lord and asking him to move in your life and speak to you again. As an 18-year-old student at college, I'd come back for the second semester after the winter term, and one of my friends walked into the cafeteria. It was night, it was dark, kind of one of those cold January days. And She looked at me and said, Hey, I'm so glad that I got to see you. I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to be changing schools, I'm transferring to another college. And I was like, well, why why are you doing that? And she said, you know, I just really felt like God was speaking to me about that and that he really wanted me to do that. And before I even knew what I was saying, I blurted out the words, I don't remember the last time God spoke to me. You know, it created this kind of uncomfortable pause where she was like, huh, I just wanted to tell you I was leaving. I didn't want to like actually get into this. God bless you. (laughs) You know, as I sat there finishing my meal by myself that night, I realized that it had been so long that I'd been operating on autopilot, right? 
I left our cafeteria and walked back to a little house that some friends of mine were renting, some upperclassmen, a guy that I'd grown up with. He's a pastor in Alabama now. And I knocked on his door and I told him that story and I just said, I, I, I don't even know what this, what does that even look like? What would it mean for God to speak to me? How would I, how would I find that again? How, how would I hear the still small voice of the Lord? Because my life was running well. It was running about 100 miles an hour. I was enjoying school. I was in church. I was going to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes meeting. I was going to Bible study in my dorm. I mean, there was nothing not to like about life. But God wasn't speaking. Or maybe I should say I wasn't listening. My friend and I spent some time walking around this little block of our campus that night. You know what? A desperation for God starts when you realize that if you're not desperate for him, you are in dangerous territory. It's like the cartoon where you're standing on the limb, sawing off behind yourself. That's what you're doing. And maybe God's going like this to you. I'm resisting you. Because you don't really want me. You just want me to do stuff for you all the time. And if I just keep doing stuff for you all the time, well, you don't need me. Because you're not hearing me right now. Would we be a church that would be like that? Where we'd just be happy to have our friends here and do our thing and come and participate in our life group? I mean, is that all this is? Or is there something more? Is there something for those of us who are in Christ that we might be hungering for? That we might need to just stop for a minute and say, Lord, I am so busy even doing things that are, are good. I'm in church this morning for crying out loud, but I'm not hearing you. I didn't come in ready to hear you. My soul isn't ready to be satisfied because I just want other stuff and, and I'll take the supper out of the sack and just keep running 100 miles an hour, never worrying that it's not really letting me operate at full capacity because I'm not hearing for you. And I want you to satisfy my soul. Satisfy the thirst this morning. Let me, let me hear your voice again. Let me hear you speak. God, would you tenderize my heart again so that I would hear the still, small voice of the Lord? that whispering voice that directs my life, that convicts my heart of sin so that I could be humble before you, Lord. If we're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think that's the message for us this morning, for our church, to long for God to speak, to be hungry for righteousness, to be humble enough to admit that we need it this morning. And if you're not a Christ follower, if if you've never given your life to Christ, that requires humility too. It requires the point of you, uh, getting to the point, I should say, of where you're ready to humble yourself before the Lord and cry out to him and realize that you are not sufficient on your own and that you need to receive his mercy and grace. It's available to you. But you must receive it humbly today. I'm going to ask us this morning if we would kind of center our hearts and our minds around this thought. Would you bow your heads and, and close your eyes?
could we start as a church by thanking God for all of the things that he's done? Would you just take a moment and thank God for the good things that he has done? Lord, we are grateful for how you have moved in our lives. We're grateful that people are being saved. We're grateful that you're providing for our needs. We're grateful that you're moving and answering prayers still, that your mercy is good for every generation. We're thankful that we've crossed 100,000 gospel engagements. Would you repent, church, right now of anything that would keep you from hungering and thirsting after the good things of God? Father, we repent of busyness. We repent of activity instead of relationship with you. We repent of our pride that says we can just charge on full steam ahead and we don't need you. We can just ask you to tack on a prayer of blessing and that everything would be good. Lord, we ask you to to not resist us but in humility to receive us, Lord. To strip us of our pride and our ego. And we confess our dependence upon you. Would you ask the Lord by his mercy to make you hungry and thirsty for righteousness? To choose righteousness above sin? Lord Jesus, we we choose by holy resolve today righteousness. We hunger and we thirst for it and we pray you would whet our appetite for it even more. Build that desire in us, Lord, because we're weak, we're frail. Father, we ask that As we pursue righteousness, you would bless us as your word promises it will and that you would satisfy us with every good thing. Lord, we believe that the scripture is right, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Forgive us when we have tried to be proud. Lord, receive us now and hear our prayer in our heart. Holy Spirit, we believe that the word is true, that you are convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And we pray for the one in the room or or multiple people in the room today who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. They've never received faith. They've never received mercy or grace. And we pray that as you work in this room, you would have the freedom to do it that you need. 
We ask you to move on the hearts of people that will engage with the gospel this week for salvation. We ask for you to change our city. We believe that your mercy is good for this generation of people living in this time and place in this city. And we ask you to use us in the mundane and the small things now to remind us that our importance comes from you as you exalt us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.